For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that were not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us for, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lori. Uh, two things to start off here. One is you may notice that everybody up front today is a dude, is a guy, and we just want to be clear that we're self-conscious about that. We did not, uh, we don't like it when that happens. That's not the, uh, the approach of city life. And whenever it is all guys up here, we want to make a note that like, that's just the way the scheduling worked out this week. Uh, women are welcome <laughs> to be up front in these roles. Uh, so we just like to always make that clear. But um, secondly, this passage that we just had, starting on verse 18, I wish it started on verse 17, where uh, Paul says that he didn't come preaching the gospel with much eloquence, because doing that could have emptied it of its power, because that is a very comforting way to start a sermon. Uh, but uh, here we are. Uh, let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have called us uh, into this place, that you uh, have a reason for each one of us to be here, wherever we're at um, in our faith or our non-faith or, or trying to figure out what we believe, whatever circumstances going on in our life, uh, whether we're coming out of a, a great week with great news or a, a really terrible week, a harsh week that other people have no idea what we're going through, uh, or if we're just skating along without much up or down, that... Uh, you have a purpose for us. You have incredible love for us. I ask that you would make that show up this morning in our lives, that we'd be transformed by that. You'd be in these words and in, in our ears that uh, we would become who we're meant to be. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So, there are a lot of interesting political stories this year, but one that you may not have heard has to do with Facebook quizzes. Um, there's a company by the name of Cambridge Analytica that put out this free quiz called the Ocean Quiz. Um, Ocean is a type of personality profile. I don't know what they all stand for. It's like openness. That's as far as I remember. The other four letters mean something. But, um, but they had a free quiz on, on Facebook that went viral, and it was, you know, take this five-minute quiz and find out your personality profile, and that's fun. Um, they also retained your data. Uh, they found your personality profile. They knew your name. And because you'd given them permissions, they could see all of your likes, all of your um, interactions online, and they had a very detailed map of who you were as a person, uh, what you cared about, what your passions were, what your fears were, the way you tend to think about things and process things. It's a pretty good five-minute quiz. Um, and it asks, because the quiz asks you things like, do you panic easily? Do you often feel blue? Do you have a sharp tongue? Do you get chores done right away? Do you believe in the importance of art? And it takes this data and it sells it in, uh, in the UK. The data was sold to the, the leave side of Brexit, so those who wanted to leave the EU. Um, and it allowed them to directly target individuals with advertising that would appeal to their particular fears and their particular passions. Um, this was also used in the US. Uh, it, it informed political campaigns to help direct uh, ads to specific people about specific appeals. And um, it's a little bit creepy, I think. Um, although kind of not that surprising when you know that everything you do on the internet is being tracked by some advertiser. But uh, the interesting thing is that the technology is really advanced now, but this is not at all a new approach uh, to winning people over to an argument. Um, for thousands of years, people have tried to figure out what their audience wants to hear, what they need to hear, what they'll respond to, and they try to tailor their message uh, to those fears, those hopes, those dreams. And when we look at this passage today in uh, 1 Corinthians, it's interesting because this is 2,000 years ago, and the Apostle Paul, who writes the letter, uh, is talking about his sense of what the market wants to hear from him. Uh, you know, so... You might be familiar, but a little bit of background on Paul. Paul is, of course, he's a Christian. But he is uh, Jewish by ancestry and raised in the Jewish faith. And he grew up in the uh, Roman Empire, an area that was highly non-Jewish. So um, he's very familiar both with, with Jewish people of his day and with what he calls the Greek people of his day, the, the non-Jewish people that he interacted with all the time. And he says that he has a sense of what they both want to hear. Uh, he says that Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. Interestingly, though, instead of saying, I have this understanding of what people want to hear, and so I'm going to give them what they want, he specifically says, my message doesn't fit with either of their uh, preferences. He says, they, they want these things. He's like, but my message is Christ crucified. And this is a stumbling block to the Jews. It is foolishness to the Greeks. Um, it says that, and again, if we had verse 17, which really could be connected to this passage, 
In that one, he makes it clear that if he were to change his message to appeal to people, to, to make it so it, it's the same message that they already want to hear, that he'd be emptying it of its very power. So this is an uh, essential thing for us to remember today, because the temptation uh, to, to change the gospel, to adapt it um, into a different message that people want to hear is still a temptation. Um, consider the demand for a sign. So the context of, of the, the Jewish demand for a sign that he gives us, and it's, it's really important to be aware of this and remember that Paul is a Christian Jew. Um, the church has sometimes in history used any mention of, of Jewish people in a negative light in the New Testament as justification to be anti-Semitic. Uh, that would not make any sense to Paul. Uh, Paul loved his people. Uh, Jesus, you might remember, is Jewish. Um, so just put that out there because this is him critiquing some, a group that he is a part of. Um, this is not, any, not to be taken that way. But um, the Jewish people at this time lived in, primarily in this little land of Israel. They also were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and they were conquered people. They lived under the thumb of the Roman Empire that had crushed them. It was like the fourth empire that had crushed them recently. Um, they, they were oppressed. They paid these exorbitant taxes that didn't really go to them. Um, they had a lot of issues going on. And so there's this desire there for God to send a deliverer, for God to send a savior, a messiah, that would bring them out of this, this terrible situation they found themselves in. Uh, and for them, it wasn't just... Now, we, we already, as Christians, have for those of us who are Christians, have a lot of language associated with what it means to be savior or deliverer or messiah. But um, for many people, the, the sense of what they meant by wanting a messiah was a mixture of religion and nationalism and, uh, and what we might call the prosperity gospel. It was this desire that, that someone would come, a man sent by God, and that he would... He would rebuild Israel's military, that he would drive out the foreigners, that he would reclaim the land, that he would restore the wealth of, of the nation, um, that he would return it to a theocracy, putting God back in government, that, that all in all, it would, just, it would restore them to their glory days uh, of the Israel of old that they had heard about. And they would be powerful. Everything would be great. Um, and, and this demand for the sign is a demand to see God on our side. It's a demand to see God backing this, this Savior. Let's see a big miracle, a big impressive miracle that says God is backing this person. God's going to intervene with power. God's going to crush the Romans under our feet. He's going to send them out. Uh, this is what they're hoping for. Uh, it shows up in interesting ways for us today, too. This same temptation... Is really present. Um, it, it can show up any time that we think that our people, the people in our group, that we, we are God's special favorite, God's special chosen, um, that, that we're more important than other people, that we deserve special privileges that others don't deserve, that we deserve to have more influence than others. It can show up in saying that we really think that our sacred text should be the one that people lay their hand on when they take an oath in court. Uh, it could be, we think that our prayers are the ones that should be offered 
before a city council meeting. That our people deserve priority status when they're being relocated as refugees over other groups of people. It has to do with this sense that our people are special and we deserve special treatment. It's not a rejection of power. You might think that people would go that way when they're suffering under the abuse of power. But it's not saying, no, power can really be easily abused. It's saying, power is okay if it was ours. If we could flip this system around and we were on top, then we'd be pretty okay with that. That's probably the way things should go. That's probably the plan that God has in mind for us. At root, the demand for a sign is about prioritizing our own security at the expense of others. It's about being willing to sacrifice other people, um, their well-being, to make sure that nothing can threaten our well-being. And then we have the, the Greek demand for wisdom. So wisdom sounds like a good thing. Um, you should want that. But as Mark talked about a little bit last week, uh, there, the, this idea of what the Greek people, especially the people of Corinth, the city that this letter was written to, what they are looking for in wisdom um, has to do with the, these traveling teachers called sophists who would come and, and offer their philosophy on life uh, for a fee. So they, they came around and they, they kind of entertained people with their, their philosophy, their approach. Um, there's a story in the book of Acts that when the Apostle Paul visited the city of Athens, um, he, he went to this collection of city leaders who, who would meet and they'd hear anybody who came with a new teaching and they were excited to hear this. And, you know, it was, uh, I guess, sort of their version of listening to a talk show or that kind of, you know, they, they wanted to, to learn this new philosophy, and then when they learned it, they, they might react. It didn't really change much for them, but um, it was interesting to be aware of what different people were teaching. But the, the wisdom that came with the sophists, um, it, was, it was very deeply individualized. It was, it was not for people who were crushed already, people who were suffering, uh, people who were, were just wanting things to be okay, who were wanting food to be on the table uh, today. It was for people, this, this is for Roman elites, um, for people who were already part of the Roman Empire, who were doing really well. They had all their needs, basic needs met, and so now they were on the quest for, for self-fulfillment. They wanted self-actualization. They wanted to, to, to feel content. Uh, you know, something was missing there, and, and they just wanted something to fill in that last little piece. Um, and so it was, it was deeply individualistic that came. The, the sophist teaching, the main premise behind most of them was that you can become a deeply spiritual person, all about your spirit, and your body won't matter. Um, interestingly, that same idea went in very different directions with different sophists. So um, you've maybe heard of the Stoics. You know, people say, you know, he's, he's pretty Stoic. Um, it was a group that went in the direction of your body doesn't matter, so you should discipline your body. You should deny it its desires and its needs. You should restrain from emotion. Um, some of these movements had very strict dietary restrictions because uh, you're, you're disciplining your body. Some of them had very strict um, like, like sexual chastity. No matter what, if you're married, it doesn't matter. It was about disciplining the body. Um, and then there, was a different, there were different groups like uh, the cynics, which their word, of course, has also come into our language, they had this idea 
that your body doesn't matter, so do whatever you want with it. In fact, you should indulge in all these terrible things that seem terrible in their eyes because you're proving how much your body doesn't matter to you. And so this led to all kinds of gluttony. It led to intense sexual promiscuity. Um, for some people, they would... Uh, the, the Diogenes, one of the main guys in the cynics, um, thought that he should live like a dog, and so he made a big show out of defecating in public. Um, he was a little bit unique in that one. <laughs> but this is the general idea. Either way, it was your body doesn't matter, your spirit matters, so either restrain it or do whatever you want with it. Um, but the whole point was it's about you. It's about you finding your fulfillment and becoming the spiritual you that you're supposed to be. Um, it's also attempting theology today. Um, it's the same sort of impulse that we find in all kinds of, of, of really individual, personal, um, spiritual practices in, in the pursuit of, of self-fulfillment, and, and really it's self-help. Um, these same impulses can show up in chasing fad diet after fad diet and detoxes, and it can show up in becoming uh, you know, a devoted disciple of a new workout program. Um, it can show up in buying um, specific products because these have been marketed to say that if you have this product, you're a happy person. You know, If you have this luxury handbag, uh, you wear this luxury watch, then you'll finally feel that completeness. You'll know that you're valuable. Um, it can show up in, in constantly chasing... Uh, attending conferences and retreats in the hope that this is going to be the one that finally connects me, helps me to feel things, uh, chasing after new spiritual practices, um, always looking uh, to find that thing that gives you that little bit of a spiritual buzz um, that, that makes you feel a bit better about yourself. It can show up um, chasing more and more educational credentials just for the sake of feeling better about yourself. Well, I know if I have enough letters behind my name, then eventually I'll feel valuable. Um, the thing, and if, if the religion that demands a sign is one that wants security, that comes with power, the religion that seeks wisdom is one that wants an individual sense of fulfillment. Um, and, and, you know, it might even involve doing some charitable work here and there, giving to charity, but it's just enough to ease the conscience. You know, the point is, you know, like, oh, wow, I, I feel, don't feel great. Let me give a little bit here. Now I feel better. I've done my part. And so to these desires, the message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block and is foolishness. If you want God, a God to, to grant you security and special privileges and power, it's not very reassuring to see a God who can die on a cross. If you want a philosophy that promises self-fulfillment, I don't know, what do you get out of the guy who says, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But this is what we have in the Christian story. And on a certain level, Christianity has a very embarrassing central story. Right? We have this belief that, that God enters into the world as a baby. Uh, the helplessness of a baby. And not just that, the baby is born to an unwed teenage mother in a barn in a little backwater of a nation that was already conquered by a much more powerful nation. And it's not like a great start, it would seem, to, to changing the world. Um, 
his childhood, he lives part of his childhood as a refugee in neighboring Egypt. He's fleeing because the, the tyrannical king of his country is so insecure that he wants to kill the children of, of Jesus' village because he heard there might be a king there. Um, he grows up learning to work with his hands uh, from his stepfather. Um, over the course of his three years of active ministry, he hangs out with all the wrong people. He keeps running afoul of uh, the religious leaders who were highly respected, had a lot of power. He had no permanent address. He said that he had no, uh, his foxes had dens, birds of the air have nests, but he had no place to rest his head. He, he was um, without a permanent home. Uh, he's eventually betrayed by one of his own followers, and then he's mocked and scorned and tortured, and then he's hung up naked on a tree. You know, he's lynched by the state. And this is the central story of Christianity. This is, this is our God. You know, this, this does not really seem to deliver on that desire for, for this power, this self-actualization. But... Well, Paul is saying this, that it's a stumbling block, that it's foolishness. He goes on to say, but in another way, this isn't weakness and this isn't foolishness. He says, this is true strength. This is true wisdom. He says, the, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And it's a deeply beautiful story. It's a story that, that God was so moved by love for the world, for, for you, for me, for people we haven't met, uh, for people who we'd walk by without ever noticing, uh, for people who are suffering, um, all around, he has so much love that he goes to absurd lengths to save it. Um, he enters in helpless as a baby. He knows exactly what it's like to live the, the tough life. He lives under oppression. He makes his living by the sweat of his brow, working with his hands. He, he's, you know, he, he goes to bed at night knowing the, the physical cost of providing food. Um, he feels it in his body. Uh, he knows what it is to have you know, the people in power constantly um, chipping away at him, crushing, doing what they can to crush him. He knows what it is to suffer injustice. Um, he knows what it is to run up against the, the, the systems that, you know, that they're worse than any one person could be. Um, they're just, they're, they're not human, and, you know, they, uh, they're not feeling, and they end up crushing people underneath in, in the march of progress. Um, he suffered all of this. And he does this out of his strength. Out of his strength, he chooses to enter into weakness with us. He chooses to become vulnerable and to share our pain, to share the burdens that we have. And, and in his weakness... He's broken. He's broken on the cross. And, and that little crack in the universe is the one that his, his redemptive love just comes pouring in. It, it comes rushing in through, through Christ broken on the cross. And as that comes in, it, it's a stream of, of living water. Um, it, it catches up. Paul, Paul says in this that you know, not many of you, he's writing to the church in Corinth, not many of you were influential, not many of you were of noble birth, not many of you um, were wealthy. You, know, you weren't impressive people, is what he's saying. Um, he says, you're not, you're not here in, in the body of believers 
because God said, you, look at you, like, you have all the trappings of, of human success, like, you're the kind of person I want. He said, no, we were nobodies. And this is part of why we've been caught up in God's living water. He says, you know, because we know that our, any strength that we have is not our own, because we can recognize that we are weak and that we need God's strength, is we're perfectly positioned to be used by God. We're perfectly positioned to experience the love of God. And so this, this living water pours out through Jesus. It catches up all the nobodies like us. It catches up the people who are, who are crushed anywhere in the world, people who are at the margins of society, who are neglected and left behind, who are treated like they're nothing, the people who are treated like they're just another cog in a system, like they're just another tool. Um, it catches up all of us, and it baptizes us, and it makes us into a new people. And it adopts us into the family of God. It says, yeah, you were a nobody, and now you are a child of God. And beyond that, it says, if you're children of God, then all these other people around you, these other children of God, these are your brothers and sisters. You're family now. And, and it, it moves into a different place. It moves into, into an unreasonable space. Um, you know, we, looking at these other um, approaches, these other desires, you see that there might be that, that charitable giving that's just enough to ease our conscience. Um, there might be that charitable giving that is just enough to get these people on our side so that they will help us in our pursuit of power. Um, but we have a much more unreasonable thing coming from Jesus. Um, he, Jesus is asking us to enter, to, to follow him to the cross, which, which is a, a messy thing, right? It, it, it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's difficult. It entails suffering on behalf of others because that's what Jesus did. He suffered on our behalf and on behalf of other people. And where common sense might say it's reasonable, you know, you see that the woman on the corner and you buy her a hamburger, the, it, it says it's unreasonable that you might try to become friends with her, to, to enter into life together, um, to be there for much more than just to provide a hamburger right now. Uh, common sense might say it's reasonable to engage in, in some political debate on Facebook, um, but it's unreasonable to put your body on the line in any meaningful way, to, to work on behalf of other people who are suffering. Um, it says, common sense says, you know, it might be reasonable not to laugh if your roommate makes a racist joke, um, but it's not really reasonable to jeopardize that relationship by, by saying anything more about it. Um, it says it, it's reasonable to donate to a good cause here and there, but it's not reasonable to, to reevaluate your entire life to say, how could I be giving more, contributing more to people who are in need? Um, and the interesting thing is that, that Jesus, by calling us to the cross, by calling us to the life like his, is calling us into this, this kind of chaotic environment. It's... Um, it's one that we are not going to be able to stamp our order on, um, but it's also one that is full of joy. It, it's, it's reasonable in its own way. It's reasonable in the way that family logic is reasonable. Uh, now, I know, I know there are all kinds of families. There are families that, 
that don't have this, but I think there's a deep understanding that in a healthy family that is working along well, you know, your brother, your sister has some, some deep need, you know, their, their child needs medical treatment that they can't afford. And, it might, and in a family, it might mean, wow, we had this down payment saved up uh, for a new car or a new house, and I, we have to empty our bank account and help pay for this treatment because it's our nephew. Um, it's not reasonable on a certain dollars and cents level, but in family, this is the kind of thing that becomes reasonable. Um, and the interesting thing is the things that we want from those other approaches, the security and the self-fulfillment, um, we can't get to them by just chasing them. But by following Jesus in this way, these promises are actually in there in a deeper way. Uh, there, there's a deeper security that you can get from, um, from a, having a lot in your bank account or from um, having bigger walls or, you know, all these different ways that we might use to keep ourselves secure. There's a deeper security in knowing that you are working with God the Father, that, that God cares immensely for you, and that you are being faithful and following God. Um, and beyond that, you know, the, the prosperity gospel that I mentioned earlier promises wealth and riches and success, and, uh, and that's not something that we find promised uh, in the Bible through Jesus. But there is an element there that when you are in need and you're connected to the body of Christ, the body of, of brothers and sisters who are also part of this family, that it's this expectation that we share, those of us who have more, share with those who have less, and then when, when situations reverse, the reverse happens. So there's a security in that, that our needs are met. Maybe we don't have a huge amount of wealth, but when we share with one another, you know, it says in Acts that, that no one went hungry, that, that the church was selling um, their excess to, to help care for the needs of others. Um, and this is, this is one of the promises that comes in here when we're knit into a family, when we really move into that. And we always have work to do in that direction. Um, but, and then the sense of self-fulfillment. Um, it, it's, you don't get to self-fulfillment by aiming for self-fulfillment. Um, when you're aiming at that, you're just looking inward. But when you are following in the footsteps of God in Jesus Christ, when you are experiencing what it means to be a human, what, you're, what you were meant for, when you know the love of community, and community's messy. I think I've said that several times, but it's true. For anybody who has tried to really engage with other people in life, you know, you may love them, but they are difficult, and you are difficult, and that's the way that is. But there is a fulfillment that comes in, in loving others and experiencing their love in return and being empowered to do this by the love of God. And so we do have foolishness and weakness, but... Like Paul says at the end of this passage, he says that Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our strength. And through him, we are able to live a life of a deeper wisdom, of deeper strength, of deeper meaning. Let's pray.
Lord, we ask that you would help us to respond to just the, the, the absurdity of the gospel. That you would help us to see your wisdom and its foolishness and your strength and its weakness. That um, we wouldn't feel crushed by the demands that you're putting here. That, that we wouldn't treat this like it's just a new law. That we wouldn't treat it like worrying that we're not doing well enough, but that we would just be filled with your love and, and open to following you in this, seeing where this takes us, that we would know your joy in the midst of all of the, the suffering and um, the chaos this entails, that we um, would be transformed to be more like you, that we would recognize what it means to live a life with you, a life marked by grace, and help us to know that in all of our failures, um, in all of our selfishness, in all of our, our, our greed that we don't even think about, that, that your grace is enough for us in those places, but that you are inviting us to something far more powerful. In Jesus' name, amen.